I would encourage you, uh, as a habit in 2015, to begin taking your worship bulletins home. We've put a lot of great things in there. You can use these for your private worship throughout the week. Great hymns to read through and uh, confessions to think over in Scripture. And I would encourage you this afternoon to Google Henry Light, the person who wrote this hymn, and read his story. And it will impress you greatly how much the Lord comforted and met this man to write a hymn such as this with a life such as he had. And I'll just leave you with that teaser uh, for your commendation. <clears throat> well, we're continuing our series about blessing Orangeburg, about loving where we live. This morning we're going to be uh, in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7. Boys and girls, make sure you have your children's bulletin. You have your own translation in there and a place you can ask questions. So please utilize that. Before we go to God's Word, of course, let's go to Him together in prayer. Let's pray. Now, gracious God, Heavenly Father, we thank You for supplying our needs. We thank You for giving us the words of life in Your Scriptures. We pray, Lord, that we would treasure Your Scripture that we would open them up and be changed by them. We especially ask that this morning, Lord, as we come to the preaching of Your Word, that You would do as You promise and build up Your people. Give us truth, Lord, for our growth, for our good and for Your glory. We ask all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you remember, a couple weeks ago we were in Jeremiah chapter 13. We saw that God had this vision for His people, that His people were meant to make Him more attractive, to be something that God could actually wear, was the metaphor He put in Scripture, that we would enhance His beauty. Then we saw in Psalm 137 last week how even though our own community sometimes can grate on us, we remember the price paid for our salvation. And that empowers us to cast off regret, to cast off wondering what God is doing, and instead we can show our community the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of God that He has shown us in Jesus Christ. Well, those are all great-sounding words, but the real question we have to ask is, okay, well, how do we do that? That is where Jeremiah 29 comes in. Jeremiah 29 is the answer to that question. How do we show our community the beauty of God in the gospel? Where we are in Jeremiah at this point, God's people had been exceedingly unfaithful to them, uh, to him. And so God did exactly what he promised he would do when he brought them into the promised land. He said, if you are faithful to me, if you will obey and live in my grace, it will go well for you. If you do not, I will carry you away to other nations. And so he did exactly that. They were carried off to a foreign nation. Most of the leading class, the best citizens were taken away, off to Babylon, the exile. Jeremiah was one of those left in Jerusalem in exile, but he was given instructions by God to write a letter to the exiles in Babylon. Other Jewish prophets were in Babylon at this time, and they were telling the exiles that it's going to be a short stay, don't unpack, go get a part-time gig to feed your family, but God's going to get us out of here, don't settle down. And so two to three years into the exile, God tells Jeremiah the truth and has him send it on. And that's where our text picks up today. So would you look with me at Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. This is the Word of God. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I 
sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. This is God's Word. And so we see, we're going to see that our calling is to be exiles. Our calling is to be exiles in a world, in a town that is not our ultimate home. And as many of us know, as many of us have said in private conversations, as I've listened to you, Orangeburg is sick. It is poor in spirit. It is a city filled with people who lack hope for their lives and for their town. Many of you, you didn't know I was listening, but I know, live here begrudgingly. It's hard to love and serve the people of your town if you regret living in your town. And we're going to see Orangeburg's not a healthy city. But we're also going to see that God has put us here to fix that. That we are the solution. So that's our theme for today. Maybe you want to write this down and remember. You can use this in family worship throughout the week as you remember what God shows you on Sunday morning. Here's what we're going to talk about today. God put Christians in Orangeburg to make our city healthy through our living in hope. Let me say that again. God put Christians, you, in Orangeburg to make our city healthy through our living in hope. See, God wants us to live here so He can bless our lives here and then He can bless here by our lives. So let's look at that together. God wants us to live here. This letter shows up in Babylon. And this letter comes and says, everyone is wrong. See, what I mean by that is everyone knew this Babylon thing wasn't going to last long. Everybody knew, man, we're God's special people. He's never going to abandon us. It it doesn't matter that we forgot Him. It doesn't matter that we lived as if He doesn't exist. It doesn't matter we completely ignored Him. We're His special people. He's going to come get us. We'll be home by Passover. So don't get comfortable. Jeremiah's letter comes and says, no, everyone is wrong. See, they hated Babylon. And they knew that God hated Babylon too. They just knew it. And they especially hated the king of Babylon for carrying them away. They absolutely were not going to do anything to make his life easier or to make him appreciate them. And here comes God at the very beginning of this letter in verse 4. The first thing he says. What does he say in verse 4? Look with me. He says, the exiles whom I have sent into exile. Literally, it says, whom I caused to be carried away as captives. God owns it from the very beginning. God takes responsibility. He says, no, I sent you there. Babylon didn't come take you. I did this. I caused this. He wanted them there. See, this is the side of sovereignty we don't talk about very much, isn't it? We can glibly say, oh, God's in control. But do we really believe that? When bad things happen, do we rest in God's sovereignty? Or do we feel like somehow we have to be God's PR man and kind of massage the situation so God doesn't look bad? We can't ever say, well, God did this and I don't like it and I'm upset. That seems unspiritual or something. 
I remember, I think it was after Hurricane Katrina, that this church on the coast was just destroyed. All that was left was three walls. And it was a beautiful day the next Sunday after Katrina. And so they held services in their church, sort of outside, roofless. And it made the news and this <clears throat> Christian news organ program came and interviewed the pastor and the pastor was giving glory to God and saying you know what God's in charge of the storms God no one got killed there were people in the building when this happened no one was killed it's a miracle we're praising God's name he did this but it's good for our good and the host interrupted him and said no 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 this host who I'm sure was a seminary trained pastor interrupted the seminary trained pastor said, no 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 God didn't cause this Satan causes stuff like this God doesn't do bad things to the church and the pastor just looked at him as like, how did you get in my son? Because i got to tell you, if God doesn't cause, in control of, can handle the bad things, we are in the wrong place. We should worship that which is there when the bad things happen. We're on the wrong team. Yeah, I'm saying that publicly. If Satan causes the bad things, we're on the wrong team. Because the bad things happen, and we need to go to the one who's in control of those things. See, God is either the sovereign Lord as revealed in Scripture, or we're left with a kind-hearted bureaucrat who'd love to help, but my hands are just tied. Which one of those deserves our worship? Which one of those brings comfort when your life is falling apart? The one who says, oh, I know it hurts. I'd love to help. I can't. Or the one who says, I know. I'm there with you. I know this hurts, but I, I love you at the price of my own son. I know what bad days are like. I'm there for you. Which one? When bad things happen in your life, dear Christian, do you feel like you have to somehow massage it? Do you feel like that you've you got to make God look good? You can't let other people know, well, God caused this. Is your faith in God or God himself that fragile? Or can you rest in the sovereignty of God that we see in verse 4 and say, this stinks, but whatever my God ordains is right. Because bad things happen. And if you can't go to God, where else are you going to go? But that's where the hope comes in. says, God owns this situation. says, I did this. I caused this. God brought them to Babylon because he wants them to live there. Guess what? The Sovereign Lord brought you to Orangeburg too. It doesn't matter what the twisted path is, or maybe it was very straightforward. You're born here. He wants us here. He's put us here. None of us is here by accident. God put them in Babylon, and He put us in Orangeburg. And even more, as verse 5 and 6 go on to show us, God wants to bless us here. Look with me at verse 5 and 6. Look what He says. These simple instructions. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives. Have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. It's so simple, isn't it? I mean, they might have expected the command to run away, get out of Babylon, or revolt, be insurgents, blow up stuff in my name. But no, the command is to live a normal life in exile. Make your home there. Settle down in Babylon. Build or buy. Don't rent. Don't live a temporary life. Keep connection. Don't keep connections and relationships at bay. Live there. You see, people have a different mindset 
when they have a temporary existence. My, my first call was in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And Colorado Springs is very unique in that there is a tremendous military presence all around the city. There are some, there's Shriver Air Force Base is there. There's, there's a huge mili- uh, Army base there. NORAD is there. The Air Force Academy is there. And so there is a tremendous military presence. I mean, so much so that the big thing in Colorado Springs when 9-11 happened, well, yes, it was a tragedy, but the big thing there was all of a sudden we all noticed on 9-12, there's no rush hour. It, all the military people were on lockdown and the roads were like vacant almost. This huge military presence. And because of that, most people were there on a three-year rotation, and they know that. And so in the churches, there was this resistance of the military families to really invest in the church because they're only going to be here three years. The people who lived in Colorado Springs permanently, there was a resistance to invest in these people because they're going to leave in three years. Being temporary changes the way you act. It changes the way you think. It changes the way you relate. And God tells his people, don't do that. You're here. Live here. God told his people, have a family. Plan for a long stay. Have lots of babies. Be residents, not migrants. See, in their culture, having a huge family was a blessing. So what God is saying there is, let me bless you in Babylon. There they were in their Jewish enclave when this letter came. Complaining about the food, the crime rate, the terrible school system, wanting to move somewhere better. They were not committed to their city. But God says, let me bless you in Babylon. Multiply. Don't diminish. Be a larger group of people in Babylon. He wants to make them a significant part of Babylon. Oh, dear Christian, God has us here because He wants to bless us here. He wants His people to be a significant part of the city. This is a call to live in hope. Having children is a declaration of hope for the future. So he's telling them, live in hope. Have children in Babylon. Orangeburg needs hope. Our neighbors, living busy lives of quiet desperation, need hope. We have the hope of Christ. We rejoice in that hope of Christ. But if we're just as down on Orangeburg as they are, they're not going to hear our message of hope. Let's make sure that we reflect the gospel by living in hope as he tells his people to hear. But this command to multiply is also, it's a command to be influential, to be a person of influence, be an insider in the secular city. God has a plan for the city. And part of that plan is for his people to be involved in the city, to be insiders. Outsiders can't really lead a community to change, can they? It takes an insider to empower real change. And so God has called His people, become insiders, become significant in Babylon. Multiply, don't decrease. That should encourage so many of you in the room. Because God has already placed so many of you where you need to be as part of His plan. Most of you in the room are insiders of some sort in Orangeburg. What would it change if you got a hold of that vision that God has put Christians in Orangeburg to make Orangeburg better? And God uses people who are inside the system. And man, I am inside the system. What would it change if you got a hold of that? Because God has put Christians in Orangeburg 
to make our city healthy through our living in hope. Okay, so what is God's plan for health then? God wants to bless here with our lives. Look with me at verse 7. It says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. That word for welfare there is the Hebrew word shalom. A lot of us know that word. It's usually translated peace. But it's bigger than that. It means wholeness. It means health. And we're going to use it here in that context as health. God's people are to seek after and pray for the health of the city where God has put them. Boys and girls, just think I'd forgotten about you. I know you're here. So we just pull out your children's translation. Let's look together at verse 7. I want to make sure you get this, boys and girls. Here's what God is telling His people. Verse 7 says this. It says, Work for the health of your city where I put you. Pray to me for your city. If your city gets healthy, you will too. You see, boys and girls, he's called you, he's called mom and dad to be something that makes the city healthy. We're kind of like doctors for Orangeburg. Isn't that great that God calls Christians to be doctors for Orangeburg? For all of us, I mean, this is a shock to them. He tells them to settle in and be good citizens. In Babylon? Did you not see what they did to Jerusalem? Did you not hear our prayer from Psalm 137, 9 last week about their babies, God? We don't want to pray for them. He says, run for city council. Be on the PTA at the local school there in Babylon. Organize a neighborhood block party. Support the school board. See, exile is a metaphor for the Christian life throughout the New Testament. It's what we mean when we say things like, well, this world is not my home. You're saying I'm an exile. And this text is specific instruction from God to exiles. This text reminds us that as exiles, we still need to have roots. We still need to love and work toward the health of the city where God has put us. You know, a lot of Christians, probably many of you in the room, if we own it, if we're candid, we tend to write the city off. We tend to live in an us versus them mentality. Even worse, we start to think of a fortress church mentality. You know, where we have to do things to keep the sinful, unsafe people away from our children especially. And we've got to make sure that the good, moral, clean people have a safe place to come. Now, I know there's that Great Commission thing, but this is better. This is more practical. See, this is why our theology matters. We, we, don't, we don't separate like that because that's not what the Bible calls us to. But many of us have this idea that, man, things are going to get worse and worse and worse. And eventually God's just going to grab all the Christians out and just going to leave the world to go through this big, great tribulation. And so, uh, yeah, we, we got to engage in missions and stuff because it says so. But really, it's really important for us to hunker down and stay faithful so we don't miss it. So let's build a Christian subculture where we have our own institutions, we keep the non-believers out so we don't have to go out into the world and get dirty because we might miss that day he comes. We voluntarily put ourselves into a Christian ghetto in direct violation of God's calling to exile. See, here's the problem. God does not tell His people to seek their peace inside the city. He tells them to seek the peace 
of or for the city. God wants to use us to make the city healthy. He wants us out in the life of the city making it better. We should all have non-Christian friends is what that means. I hope, and I say this in love, I hope in all your Christian busyness of going to this Bible study and then going to this thing and going to that thing and then going to church and being part of this crowd you know from church, I hope that you have places where you go where you can meet and become friends with non-Christians. Because that is seeking the health of the city. And in addition, we're called to seek the health of the city, but we're also called to pray for the city. This would have shocked the exiles. Without a doubt, they were praying to God for their future, right? To get out of Babylon. Or we saw one of their prayers last week. They were praying violence down on Babylon. But God tells them to pray for Babylon. I believe that when Jesus told his followers, pray for your enemies and bless those who persecute you, I think he had this verse in mind from Jeremiah 29. Because this is the only verse in the entire Old Testament. Say it again. This is the only verse in the entire Old Testament where God's people are told specifically to pray for their enemies. That's where Jesus grabbed the idea from. So in order for us to pray for our city, our city that may be hostile to us, we have to be out and involved and know what to pray for, don't we? See, again, this is where most of us get stuck. Because instead of seeking the peace and health for the city, we seek peace and health in our homes away from the city, don't we? This command forces us to get out and to know the city. How else can we pray for it? See, busy middle class folk like us are more and more isolated in our homes. We engage more and more in fake community online. But we actually, when you get right down to it, live lonely lives of quiet desperation, hungry for hope. Your neighbors need hope. That's why we are kick-starting our small group ministry with these dinners tonight. Not just for our benefit, but for the benefit of the community. One of the best ways to bring peace and health to your neighbors, to our neighbors, is to give them hope through friends. Most people currently in America right now struggle with poverty. They're friend poor, they're time poor, they're money poor, or they're a combination of those. They're isolated. They're lonely. They lack true relationships. They've got plenty of acquaintances, but they don't have anybody who when life falls apart at 2 a.m. and they're freaking out, they can call and say, I am freaking out. Can you pray for me right now? Because I don't know what to do. Most of you, I wonder, do you have that friend? See, but a small group of believers growing together in their faith, becoming friends, that's an oasis of peace. That's an oasis of health in a crazy, busy world like we have. What a great place to come and invite people to come and have some friends. See, and here's where it gets really good in verse 7. Here's where we really start to see the heart of our great God. We are to work toward, we are to pray 
for the peace and health of our city so that He can answer our prayers. What does He say there in verse 7? In its welfare, you will find your welfare. He wants to answer our prayers for our good. Again, step back and look at the text and let's think. Let's work through this text together. Why are the Jews in Babylon at all at this point? Because they weren't healthy. They had lost God's blessing. They had been completely disobedient to Him. They had forgotten Him almost completely. The curses of the covenant had come down on their head and they needed to be healed of their unfaithfulness. They were not at peace with God anymore. There was no health in that relationship. And so God is showing them the plan for their health too. Build the health of your city and you get healthy is His promise. Oh, we would all like for our lives, for our church to be healthier, wouldn't we? What this passage forces us to face, dear flock, is that the key to a healthier church is not merely what we do inside this building, but just as important, perhaps even more important to a healthy church is what are we doing outside these walls to make Orangeburg healthy? Because in Orangeburg's health, we find our health. Are you tracking with me? you following this? I mean, it's so easy to complain about the problems of the city, of Orangeburg, isn't it? Of the county. It's so easy to complain about the problems of our society in general. Morals are going crazy. It's not like it used to be. Liberals are taking over. People don't come to church like they used to. It seems that uh, my favorite one is God's abandoned America. You have to say it, America, okay, right? See, Jeremiah 29, 7 forces us Christians to face a very, very ugly truth. Declining church numbers, a society supposedly sinking deeper into darkness, are actually symptoms of the same disease. It's the disease of Christians withdrawing from society instead of engaging and seeking to make society healthy. In other words, when we look out and bemoan the state of culture, it's our fault for withdrawing from that culture in the first place instead of actively seeking and engaging to find and build the health of that culture. And as a result, an unhealthy culture yields unhealthy churches. Thus, God says, build the health of your city, of your culture, and you'll find your health. See, there's still hope for America. I have a lot of hope for America, more than I've had ever, actually. Because Christians are still here. We're still called to engage the city. We're still called to look at God and believe His promises. Churches will find peace and health in the health of their city. It's a great time to be a Christian in America because gone are the, well, this is just kind of the religious facade we wear to get along in society. And, well, it's, it, especially in a small town, right? It's easier to get a loan at the bank if they know you go to church. And, and a church is a good place to network and so everybody goes there. But gone are those days. People are, are at church for the most part now. Why? Because we want to be here to worship. That's a great place to be. Because that gets to the real issue. There is no lasting peace in the city until the people of the city are at peace with God. That's what we're working for. The city is healed when the people find Jesus Christ and confess 
faith in Him. So I'm just going to say it. Gone are the days of walking up to a total stranger and trying to sell them Jesus. I don't know about you, I've done that. I've never seen a conversion. Maybe you have. Instead are the days of serving and loving our city so well that they marvel at Christians and they come to us and want to know why we are like that. I've seen that happen. You see, this ties our whole series together now. The beauty of God and the gospel, we talked about a couple weeks ago, is that He wants to make ugly things beautiful through Christ. Ugly sinners are made beautiful in Christ. And ugly cities are made beautiful by Christians. I'll say that again. Ugly sinners are made beautiful in Christ. And ugly cities are made beautiful by Christians. That's His plan. And we embrace that plan when we get a vision of the gospel as well. When we see that in the gospel, the beauty of heaven itself, the Prince of Peace, the Son, Jesus Christ, came down and He put on ugly sinful flesh. He endured the ugliness of years of temptation. He gave Himself up to the bitter ugliness of being beaten and crucified on a cross He did not deserve. And in destroying his own health and beauty like that, he destroyed our sin. He destroyed our ugly so we can be beautiful and healthy in him. We get a vision for that. We take health to our city. Because now to all those who confess their faith and trust in the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ, he says, go and make the city beautiful in my name. Oh, dear Christian. It is time. It is time for us to hear the call to go and make our city beautiful. We are to seek the health of Orangeburg. We are to pray for the health of Orangeburg. Because as our city becomes more healthy, God has promised our Christian life and our church will become more healthy. We will be more fulfilled. We will have more joy and we will see God move in power in amazing ways if we are willing to obey and go seek the health of Orangeburg. The question is, will we in Jesus' name do that? Let's pray together.